Everybody, welcome to another installment of Show to V with Mike G, the show of life, the show of animals, the show of Jan Portland, Speed Rack, and so much more. Today we chat with Monkey47, Brandon Ambassador, Lacey Hawkins as she travels the United States talking about this wonderful German gin, how it's made, how it tastes, how it makes her feel, the beautiful distillery site itself. She was recently in Texas. We sat down and chatted about her life, how Speed Rack was influential, how New York was an influential chapter, and so much more. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this great chat with Lacey Hawkins. Um, I think people who don't love animals should not be trusted. Oh my God. I was going to ask you that question right? next. Like, Thank you for this. <laughs> that's a really weird thing. If you're like, mm, I don't like animals. Yeah. I think that's really strange. Um, do you mean with animals because I work with monkey 47? No, not literally. There? Right. But it seems like you've yeah. got a connection to nature and to animals. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think, you know, we're, we're recording in Austin yeah. and I've been hanging out in Texas this week. <clears throat> Austin and Portland are very, very similar. That's right. And and as someone who's from Portland, I can really say that. And so you can probably understand too that there's sort of a culture within the community of Austin where there's a lot of respect for animals. Yeah. There's uh, even in terms of meat that you might want to consume. Is it humanely raised? Right. Is it far, truly farm to table? You know, do you have the space to keep chickens? Yeah, that's a great point. Or bees, or mason bees, right. or, you know, do Which you, you would know the distinction, which we'll talk about at some okay, point. Okay, <laughs> great, perfect. Uh, and in New York, there is a lack of that unless you have enough money. Oh, wow. So you don't get to have enough space to keep those sorts of um, animals. Right. I, I, I resist saying keep those animals, but like, you know, yeah. have that, that luxury in your life. Um, and there's so much to choose from in terms of consumption yeah. that you don't always get the the option to say to your server, you know, and quoting Portlandia, like, where is this chicken from? <laughs> Going to visit it. Yeah. yeah. So I think um, that caring about what you consume directly correlates to ideally caring about animals yeah. a little bit right but again anybody who doesn't like animals is fine like it's is, is not okay any, like do you know anybody like that no, maybe I you're mean, slightly close to that's like no nah, i just don't like animals you know the people who are like ah, i'm not really a dog person yeah. i'm not really a cat person and that's fine sure. but like people who just don't like animals i think that's really strange do you ever get anybody that says no nah, i just don't really listen to music yeah that's mind-blowing to me as well yeah. i know we're all like have this crazy look on our face yeah but, but but it's like I think it comes down to about priorities, right? Like yeah. you, I'm sure you know people who are like I don't really listen to podcasts. Yeah, it's well, like they just they just don't make that a priority. And they, yeah, right? Like obviously you're missing out, <laughs> um, but they just don't really make it a priority. Yeah. So and I think maybe the people who don't really listen to music they probably read a lot. Yeah, or maybe they point. maybe they draw a lot. I don't know. But what do we do with our lives? And I say this honestly, without animals, 
to be I, I if I didn't have my beautiful beloved Shiba Inu downstairs, I don't know exactly if I'd feel as whole, you know? So music's one thing. Mm-hmm. But what do you do without animals and that kind of connection to nature? Because ultimately that's what it is. I think that it's really about how that connection maybe correlates in your own life. Yeah. So maybe for some people, their relationship with animals doesn't have a um, you know, huge effect on their life. Sure. But Again, I think you and I agree. That sounds like, like you had a pretty um, incredible experience today with vultures so and snails. Many I mean, enough, yeah. enough to want to talk about it yeah. now. So this is why the don't, thing. Why don't I interview you about animals? And you tell me <laughs> why do you like animals so much? You know what? We we'll, we'll, we'll keep it to this one question, of course, because this power dynamic is so uncomfortable for me to have people <laughs> ask me questions. It's just because I'm sitting on a higher stool. <laughs> no, I know. I like it. That's intentional too. Don't let anybody know. But this is like totally mm-hmm. a subconscious mm-hmm. thing. But Animals are innocent, right? They can't necessarily take care of themselves. Their connection to this purity and this lack of technology, this absence of overthinking, this absence of cerebralness where we over-intellectualize stuff. So it's like a simpler time, a simpler essence. It just... just, I don't know. I don't know about that. No, I think that's a very American perspective. Yeah. I think that in America, we... We view animals in two different ways. We mm-hmm. view them for our consumption and our our disposal and solely for our survival. Mm-hmm. And then we view them as our companions and for our pleasure. Yeah. And so that sounds selfish though, doesn't it? It's incredibly selfish. <laughs> it's not like that everywhere else. No. You know? I mean you look at like people going to China and um Korea and you know, um South Korea and trying to rescue dogs off of dog oh, farms yeah. i mean uh i while i i think that that is absolutely ridiculous to go to another uh country and shame them for whatever culture it is that they have Good point, and yeah. their diet uh the way that we treat cows in america oh, you don't India's. see people from india coming oh, yeah. over here being like i'm gonna rescue all these cows no, right like right. the way that we treat animals that we eat is 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 completely deplorable, yeah, right? You, so we you, can sit here and talk about dogs and how they're like man's best friend and how they're cherished, but no, like you're right. we're not we're not thinking that same way about I, it's the, you're right. The, the, we we carry this Western lens mm-hmm. wherever we go in the world, and we kind of impose our expectations. I mean, mm-hmm. I get that, but I do not as as much as I don't want to take part of it. That's their thing. That's cultural for them, and that's appropriate. Eating dogs in some places, okay, fine. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to bitch about it. That's kind of to your mm-hmm. point. What's the point? It's not. Mm-hmm. My beliefs, I can go to your house and say, no, 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 sorry, you've decorated your entire living room wrong. Makes no sense mm-hmm. whatsoever. But this story, and we're going to traverse lots of great things, talk about animals, talk about food. I have a feeling we're going to cover a lot of ground. Good. Just based on the way that things have started, <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to really be bopping around a lot. Good. Well, you know, it's nice to sip some Monkey 47 and have a chat about life. We can talk about brands, which we will. Talk about the love of gin, which we will. But... This whole thing starts in our sister city. Should, should it be a brother city or sister city to Austin, Portland? What do you think? Um, I think it should be like a Siamese a si- twin c- city. <laughs> do I, I like that a lot. But you are a native Oregonian, is yes. that fair? Uh-huh. Oregonian, yeah. Yeah, and you grew up in Portland proper or mm-hmm. did you live? No, Portland proper, yeah. What kinds of things were you getting into as a young person developing mm-hmm. a portlandian Mm. kind of mindset was Mm. it punk rock was it cooking was it sports Mm, interesting 
Uh, it was actually a lot of underground hip hop. Oh my god! I know, like yeah. hieroglyphic. Is that fair? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I was really into this label out of San Francisco called Quantum, uh -huh. which was like Lyrics Born, Latif, Blackalicious. Oh, cool. Coup. Um, but I was actually a very straight laced. I mean, I I see. I even now I'm like a fairly straight laced person, yeah. <laughs> even though uh, I like to have a good time. But sure. uh, yeah, as a kid, I did lots of sports. And what kind of sports? Because you're like five eight five nine something like that i'm actually six three jesus i'm guys, not i'm not this, at all this whole stool thing is really messing up my perspective <laughs> i'm not at all i five seven oh, yeah. okay close <laughs> yeah what, what is that what's the sport then softball do you play volleyball basketball uh it was volleyball yeah, yeah i played volleyball for a long time yeah does that lead you to kind of an academic path in that sense sometimes mm, that, no. no not at all no i don't think that any um avenue would have led me down an academic path that was just i did not enjoy the western style of education and i think that it's really important after high school to take a small break yeah. and just be a human being for a little bit and before you decide if you want to learn more in yeah. a in an educational like a, you know like a school setting what you want to yeah. learn yeah so was there any expectation that you would go to college or the folks or your family like that? Nah, I think it would have been really great if I had gotten all of my college paid for because my family could not afford to pay for college yeah. and I didn't take out any student loans. So the college that I did go and uh, take, I paid for it all out of pocket. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I have no debt right now. I envy you for that. Yeah. I mean, I know someone who's, who just, <laughs> they've been deferring their loans for, I don't know, years and sure. they just, they just got a notice that was like, you owe $1,200 a month. Like, <laughs> oh, shit. I don't, I, who can pay that? No, it's think. insane. You know, and, and so when you, and I, I'm curious because this notion of Western education, that's all I've experienced. I don't really have a lot of different, for instance, I never went to school in Europe, which maybe could be classified as Western education as well. But that, what is that style like? What are the characteristics of a Western style education mm -hmm. as you see it? I think that, learning for the sake of test taking mm. and getting a certain grade on a test. I did not enjoy sitting in a classroom and listening and taking notes. I don't enjoy. Yeah. Um, I'm someone I learn really well from like seeing things be done, sure. getting my hands dirty, creating. I learn the best when I'm also teaching. So mm. um, I appreciate more of a, a well, like a holistic class right. environment. Yeah. Traveling the world is a way to actually learn. Mm hmm having to suffer, or not suffer, but having to find your way in a place you've never been before without technology. That's a great thing, getting lost in a favela, right? Like, <laughs> these are tough things, but actual ways to learn. When you talk about the connection to nature and to food, and of course, I'm going to always ask, did you ever have a music career? I, I, <laughs> no. No, no, I can play it. the harmonica, but that's about it. Really? Yeah. That's not so I think bad. anyone can play the harmonica. Though. Sure, that's it's just easy. an inward-outward motion yeah, with yeah, air, right? Yeah. But... When do you think that your interest, was it your interest in the world that made you interested in food and alcohol spirits? Mm -hmm. Or was it an introduction elsewhere that kind of put mm -hmm. you into this world and this path? I think it was just, you know, my parents were always really interested in cooking and yeah. eating different things, eating um, curious new things. I mean, I remember the first time I had a crepe when I was a oh, kid, man. and you know, just Great, they, right? you know, just they were into eating different things and um, and cooking at home. And I was in charge of making one meal a week, mm. whether it was like breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And 
And there was kind of like no limits. It could be grilled cheese and tomato soup or yeah. it could be something else. And I would pick out a recipe and they would get the ingredients. And so, um, you know, dining, food, thinking about what you're consuming was always a part of my life growing up. Yeah. And I also think that just the environment that I lived in in Portland, that was something that you know, you're in the in an environment where there are farmer's markets and there are produce delivery services and you know, the grocery stores have just amazing a, a, a bounty. Yeah. A bounty. Yeah. It is weird because we both, and then you, you know, we'll talk about when you shifted and moved to New York, but I guess it's hard to get perspective on the opposite now to think like, oh, we can't get good foods or you can't mm. get stuff that's, I know organic's not necessarily the term I want to use, but like I can go across the street into like this commercial grocery store, Texas only, but you get like some insane produce. We have so much access to stuff do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing to just have everything available in terms of produce all the time i mean it's not realistic right, right? but but we also live in a, an economy where you can have avocados year-round and yeah. you can have grapefruits or cherries year-round um is it real no but <laughs> like People are selling it and sure. Americans are buying it and you're eating it. You're going yeah. across the street and getting it. So, um, you know, it, if you wanted to have more of a local-based diet yeah. and you wanted to eat things that were only grown in, let's say, a 200-mile radius of Austin, mm -hmm. um, your diet would probably be limited in certain sure. seasons. Maybe not. I mean, it's pretty warm down here. But yeah. we, Man, we grow some crazy stuff yeah. just within like 50 miles of here. That's great. You should try it out. I, I it's called locavor. Is that ultimately? Yeah. What, yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you done that before? Do you still do that? That type of. I diet? try to be really conscious about the things that I consume in general. Yeah. But I would not call myself a locavor. I mean, I have a, a CSA subscription, and I pick up produce every week, and um, try to just be really conscious about the things I'm eating and how they might affect the environment yeah. in terms of the carbon footprint. Because obviously, I travel a bit for work and. Um, I live in New York City, and I try to ride my bike as much as I can. But mm -hmm. you know, I, I I live in an environment where it's difficult to have a smaller footprint. So doing things like composting and purchasing vegetables from my local garden and yeah. um, stuff like that. So. Well, and, and even to the extent where you were facilitating a chat with Claire and Kelsey in Chicago mm -hmm. next month about sustainability, mm -hmm. right? So have this this sense of sustainability. And yeah, I'm, I'm hopping all around here. And this is a great thing about it is you're you're absolutely right there with me. Every little topic, which I'd <laughs> love, right? But sustainability, which Ian and Kelsey's traveling for Trash Tiki, which has been an amazing thing. Is it something that you've been thinking about for a long time or the more that you travel, that's become something that's much more cognizant for you, sustainability and living that kind mm -hmm. of imprint? Like I said, I think I grew up in an environment where it was something that you thought about. Yeah. Um, did that mean that I was, as a kid, making sweeping move moves to change certain things about my life? I don't know. I mean, yeah. I grew up in an environment where you you always asked for paper instead of plastic, yeah. or you brought your own bags, or you know, you tried to walk when you could. And now in New York, I just you know, yeah, I think that being sustainable right now is a is is unfortunately to say this word trending yes, right right um it's unfortunate when something is trending even if it's good because uh, eventually it will become exploited and it will eventually become untrendy yeah. but um i think that what's happening right now is consumers are hopefully ideally becoming a little more conscious of the things that they're purchasing yeah 
Um, and I think that it takes people like you that people look up to, right, to kind of be a gateway into that conversation. People like Kelsey, people like Claire, you know, and the great group of folks in the, the hospitality industry that allow that to happen. So going back then, finally, as the entry point into the hospitality realm, did this start at a Marriott court, court, Courtyard? Is that mm-hmm. the first gig? Yeah. So... I mean, kind of. I mean, my first gig was like at a as a bouncer at a, this uh, crazy right. Greek uh, nightclub that was very corrupt and very uh, <laughs> corrupt. Like right a word. drug ring kind of thing. We had one of those in Austin recently. Um, a, no, I think it was just a lot of like Greek mafia, and oh, they were wow. they were building additional bars and apartments and offices within a giant building. That had not they had not approved any city permits, oh, and man. so um, yeah, it was just it was just kind of a crazy place. I mean, I saw a lot of wild stuff there, and um, and they trained me to become a bar tra- quote unquote trained me. I mean, <laughs> I a I couldn't even pour a pint of beer, and b there was not really any training there. <laughs> um, but eventually, I I left shortly after they burned to the ground. Wait, is yeah. that a literal thing? It literally burned to the ground or just fundamentally, structurally? Fundamentally, structurally. Corruption will do that, right? Take you straight down. Yeah, I, I actually had to think about if there was a fire in there because it was. <laughs> it would totally be possible that there was, yeah. Tangent, was there blood on the floor? I just imagine there are at, many at, shootings. At times, absolutely, oh my gosh. yeah. It's weird. You never think of like crazy clubs in small cities like no. Portland, but yeah, it was It was not to me when they were the, it was like the only place in town, so... Stuff just got weird. That's great. How long were you there, to, roughly? As a bouncer, I I, I don't know. Maybe like uh, I don't I don't know. I would I want to say less than a year because I don't <laughs> want to say I was there for a year. And I would be I would be I don't want to unearth any feelings from the past or anything. Yeah. I would be surprised if I was there for a year. I think it was certainly less than a year. Man, did you see? Are you a tough person? I mean, being a bouncer at a place filled with Greek mafia folks seems like mm-hmm. you'd have to be pretty gritty. I don't know. Do I think I'm a really smart person. Okay. So, and I think if you're a good bouncer, you don't have to be tough. You just yeah. have to be smart. Brains you just not have brawn, to be, right? Yeah. I mean, brawn causes fights. Yes. Brains, true. brains don't. So yeah, that's a good point. And it's true diplomacy, right? Yeah. The Kissinger method, if you will. So, courtyard Marriott, mm-hmm. which is maybe number two, but this job a little bit calmer, a little more tame, less. Gunshots potentially? No gunshots. Oh, good. That's great. Um, calm and de- and more tamed. I guess it just depended on the night. Yeah. You know, it was. It's a weird place to bartend at a. At, it's weird to bartend at a ho- hotel bar in general, but then to bartend at a courtyard Marriott is just very, very, very weird. So, um, yeah, I think I was there for maybe about two or three years. No kidding. Yeah, too long. Too long. Way too two long. to two. Th- Money was good. Money was very good, <laughs> and the. The looking back on it, I just go, wow, I didn't have to do anything there. And the money just <laughs> would roll in. It was great. I mean, but Oregon in general, you have a high minimum wage. So right. in addition to your tips, you're always getting it's well. like high minimum wage, low taxes, unless you own a home. Yeah. Oh, home, the housing taxes are pretty high. So. Well, no income. T- oh, no, sorry. No sales tax, right? No sales tax. That's nice. I love yeah. dining in Portland for that particular reason. And they pump your gas for you. That's good, but I am capable. I do feel a little... I am not. So, no, no. <laughs> no, I still have to have people help me pump gas if I'm ever driving in a different state. Man, that's, yeah. that, I, that's interesting. I'll put it that way. Because I can't... I don't want to just 
I feel like then I'm so like helpless and I'm I'm not, you mm. know? I love it. Not having to pump gas. That's nice. Pull up. They're very nice to you. Yeah. You're creating jobs. Um That's a good point. You I know, about they that. pump your they're very it's very nice. Yeah, it's and, not a bad um, white gloves always nice, right? Mm. White glove service. I <laughs> <laughs> These people are not wearing white gloves, just No, so I know. know. <laughs> it's a, it's a bad, but it, as sure. far as I'm concerned, a nice It's a luxury. Metaphor. Absolutely. If you're in Oregon or New Jersey. Yeah. Oh, New Jersey as well. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that. After stepping away from the Marriott, did you think, okay, you know what? The money's good. This hospitality thing, maybe pouring some booze to some regulars day in, day out or whatnot. Did it seem like that was the next step for you? You wanted to dive more into that field or were you yeah. looking? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I cut my teeth at the Marriott and a friend of mine, one of my best friends, his name's Adam Ho. He was opening up a bar and restaurant called Look Lock mm-hmm. and it's a Vietnamese restaurant in Portland. Mm-hmm. Highly, highly, highly recommend going. Love Vietnamese food. Be prepared to wait in line for a minimum 30 minutes. Really? No matter what time of the day you go. Small spot, big spot? Big spot, yes. long line. May I, those are the best yeah. places. Yeah. Easily. You'll wait every single time. Um, I was just there on last Saturday and I waited outside for 30 minutes. Oh, that's great. And I used to work there. So like <laughs> they were still giving me VIP treatment and yeah. I was waiting. Um, but yeah, I worked there for about two and some change years or so and uh, helped develop the cocktails there and just helped, you know, what Look Lock is today is completely different from when I was there, which should be said for any bar that you've been away from for right. about five or six years. But And then uh, at the same time, I was working at Nostrana, which is um, it's in Portland on, I think probably what, like maybe 14th and Morrison okay, or something okay. like that. And it's a Italian, very, 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 very seasonal. Like cool. you'll have a particular berry, like a wild, you know, huckleberries only grow in the wild. Mm-hmm. So you'll have like, huckleberry jam for three days of summer you know very 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 seasonal italian um restaurant that as yeah. uh is is really really incredible when you really think because it's interesting so you have a vietnamese genre of mm-hmm. food if you, if you want mm-hmm. cuisine an italian genre if you think about the corresponding spirits and the corresponding flavors they're very very different some overlap mm-hmm. i'm sure did you feel like it was a different lens or a different chapter in how you constructed drinks being kind of rooted in Asian cuisine mm-hmm. and then rooted in Italian. I think uh, they both complemented each other very well. I, yeah. I I think that having two contrasting environments just made me enjoy each one that more and mm. gave me more skills and uh, more tools. And creating drinks was a challenge in both places, albeit very different for sure. both spots. Do you fancy yourself a creative person? I think that anyone who works in the beverage industry should be a, is a creative person. And even if they don't call themselves that, because maybe they don't have the urge to grab a pen and start doodling, right? (laughs) Uh, That they are a creative person because what you're doing, you're you're creating flavors, you're creating drinks, you're creating menus, you're, you know, creating potentially an experience for your guests. So um, if you don't consider yourself to be creative, you should just maybe rethink what creativity is. That's a good point. Yeah. Does underground hip hop ever give you some sparks of inspiration? In terms, no, it doesn't. <laughs> I, it's it's not something that I, it's no. I I I'm, I wish I could tell you that it did, but no, it doesn't give me sparks of inspiration. It, That's it's, good. Everybody it's a music I enjoy things. listening to, but yeah. I don't find that it fuels my my drive for creativity. What fueled your drive to be a beekeeper? When did this mm-hmm. hobby or even semi profession begin mm-hmm. for you? 
my family are beekeepers and oh, it was just wow. so just kind of like second generation you don't do or it, longer we're gonna question you and your <laughs> you know place in this family so yeah. my grandfather and my uncle and my stepmom and me and so uh that's sort of where it that's very started. cool yeah is that fair to say third generation beekeeper yeah that's, that's fair to say that's kind of cool yeah. i've never met a beekeeper no less a third mm -hmm. generation mm -hmm. beekeeper yeah that profession or that trade how do you sustain that in new york if mm -hmm. you're still able to sustain it there i don't currently keep honeybees in new york um that's something that people tend to get a little paranoid about <laughs> yeah. and it's it's ridiculous that they do. Because, what are they afraid of bees, right? They get yeah. stung, it hurts, blah, blah, blah. But yeah. you see more humane, yeah. gentler side of bees? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like drinking mezcal, right? Like maybe uh. you taste it and you don't like it. But if you taste it and you know something about it, then you're like, oh, oh, okay, I get it. So oh. it's the same thing with bees. It's like if you don't know anything about them, you you don't like them. But if once you learn about them, you realize, oh, they're not so bad. Yeah. I think that there's been fear and paranoia put into people around bee stings. Mm -hmm. And I think that doctors, in order to cover their ass, have just been giving people EpiPens and telling them that they're allergic. And the reality is that it's 0.01% of the American public is allergic to bees okay. in, a, in a deathly way. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, the reaction you're going to get from a bee sting is totally normal. Swelling, itching, redness, sure, like a mosquito throbbing. bite in a way, right? It, it would be like a very large mosquito bite. Yeah. But, you know, bee, bee venom is also used in rheumatoid arthritis and injected into people's um, fingers yeah. for... Anti-inflammatory? Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so you get a bad rap. Bees, yeah, yeah, keeping bees in New York... You know, if you if your dog bites someone and someone says, your dog bit me, right. they need to be put down, okay? Obviously, like extreme situation, sure, right? Sure. They would then have to prove that that dog belonged to you. Okay. Okay? If someone, in, and this is a law in New York. Okay. Someone gets, if, let's say I have bees in my backyard and my next door neighbor gets stung by a bee. Yeah. And they're like, that those bees stung me, they need to be gone. Oh my God that neighbor would then have to prove that those bees belong to me. How does... You can't. Perfect. That you you, can, you never can. But landlords don't like that story. <laughs> and so, um, um, you know, the community gardens that are in my neighborhood yeah. all have bees, which is amazing. Cool. And uh, they don't need my help. So even... It's great. That's, yeah. That is... That is the best. When everywhere in my neighborhood has bees and they don't need my help, I think that is a, a an ideal situation. It's a great so. place to live. Yeah. Bring you back to home in some sense. Mm -hmm. After getting stung by bees multiple times, does it eventually get less and less painful and less and less allergic? Or is it always as painful? It, I think it depends on the person. Okay. For me, it, your reaction to the bees, and I don't mean like your physical reaction, but I just mean like, how you mentally and and maybe what you do immediately after getting stung yeah. is totally different. Like you go, oh crap, I just got <laughs> stung again. Like, and you'll put some baking soda and water on there, and it'll really? be fine. And yeah, that's a good tip. Yeah, I heard that WD four. That's an old. Don't do tip, that. But that's what I've heard. What is, I would never do that. <laughs> just because that sounds WD -40. terrible. <laughs> I don't even put WD forty on my bike chain. 
<laughs> it's you know it's a strange thing and it smells very very like mm. out otherworldly yeah i, I don't so, know it's like smelling gasoline when you go to pump <laughs> gas where you're like ah this i know this smell isn't good for me but somehow i'm smelling it because it reminds me of something that i that i think i know yes or that i love that it's like alien it. but there's hints of something familiar mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe even familial but it's nice that you still have this connection the bees and i think it's a very intriguing thing is it something you ever think about returning to full time as we you know we'll talk about the shift to new york and really really taking center stage and then you have the speed rack piece as well which we'll talk about but do you ever return to the bees when you set off into retirement mm-hmm. and just kind of hang out with the bees yeah and i don't really feel like i've ever not been mm-hmm. a beekeeper and um so i don't th- for me there's no returning i don't feel like i've really left so I like it while i while i I'm not actively keeping bees in New York right now. That's really just because I know that I don't think I have the time or the resources today yeah. to find a sustainable and um, long-lasting place to keep bees. It's very responsible of you. Yeah. It really is. So I've had the pleasure of speaking with some wonderful participants in Speedrider. So Elise recently, Elise Blackman, Ivy. And it seems to be something that is a very, very punctuating chapter in your career, maybe probably your life even. Because everyone that I've talked to that's participated said the level of skill, the level of attention, the level of camaraderie exceeded anything they've ever experienced before. Can you, how formative was the speed rack experience for you in terms of being an adult, being someone that is embracing the world? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in, in terms of my own adulthood, it, it, it helped shape my career, which, you know, was really lovely. Yeah. Um, but I would have become an adult either way. Of course, right. Of course. Yeah. I think that speed rack gave me the opportunity to see what opportunities existed. I mean, I remember the first time that I ever saw a video of bartenders in speed rack and I just thought, oh my God, is that something I can do? Is that, wow. And I said to my friend Adam, who opened Look Lock, like if they ever come to New York, we have to do it. And then they were, or if they ever come to Portland, I'm sorry, we have to do it. And then they were, they were coming and I was just (laughs) so (laughs) nervous and so scared. And I think Speed Rack is an opportunity for bartenders to showcase their their skills, to sometimes hone in their skills. But I think it's really, really, really important for men to stop and watch other bartenders do a good job. Yeah. Um, and it's really important for I think you know Speed Rack has had a a, a huge. Um, hand in shaping a lot of careers and a lot of, and provided a lot of opportunities and really helped change the conversation around bartending in America. Yeah. But it was also what we, we forget to mention is like, it was really important for men. It's really important for men Interesting. to, 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 to be a part of speed rack as a participant yeah. and the effects that it has had on men to see bartenders that don't look like them sure. do very well, I think has been pivotal. Because if we don't have equality mm-hmm. and if we don't have intersectionality, then you have otherness and it's you, you, you don't achieve the results of having a diverse 
environment as a bartending community. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, what happened with Speed Rack five or six years ago with bartenders being able to showcase some of their skills and having a platform to show, hey, I'm actually really good at my job and you should take notice. You're, we're, we're seeing that now in the same light with people of color mm. in the beverage industry. And um, it's really good for white women to see that. It's really good for white men to see that. And it's, it's time. And if, you, if you're not a part of the conversation, mm. then you are actively, you know, disagreeing and it's not okay the conversation is the key point here i think because what we're having is a conversation there are details there is repartee if you will so we're going back and forth about this concept i think and i rather the way to phrase this as a question is with social media because we all whether we're representing a brand or representing ourselves which are a brand of ourselves we give these little sound bites these little succinct notions of a concept that is far more complex so do you think that the absence of an actual conversation is contributing to things becoming compartmentalized and less varied, less diverse? I don't I don't know. I don't know if 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 we can sit here and have that conversation. Yeah. I think that there need to be some other people in this room before mm. we we continue that conversation. If we're going to talk about intersectionality, I think we might need to be more intersectional. Hmm. You know what I mean? I think I do. I think, I think it's they... I think it's a little bit um, self serving, maybe maybe to have to have a conversation around what I think needs to happen, and I'm, right. I'm I'm ready to listen to what maybe other people have on their agenda and how I can potentially support that. Understood. Yeah, it's a it's good having these conversations with multiple people one-on-one off mic on mic i think all of it can be productive ultimately that's the end goal for me is that if i get to talk to someone that's different than me that has a different background i can learn and i can try to empathize to the best of my ability although i'll never truly understand what you've been through or anyone else truly that's been in this chair that you're sitting in so i think it's good to hear your experience and speed rack is in your opinion a positive thing to promote intersectionality, I think is the word that you use, which is interesting where I'm going to have to add that. It's been a positive thing and it still resonates and is a positive thing. Absolutely. Mind? I mean, I think Speed Rack in general is alive and well. I mean, it's. I think it's coming up on maybe it's seventh year. I, I believe it's the seventh year and there are still so many different people who are applying and so many people who are competing. I mean, you know, it's not like it was just a flash in the pan. There are right. a lot of people who are really, really um, willing and excited and ready to participate in Speed Rack. And I think that it just goes to show that it, there wasn't sort of a uh, top tier of bartenders who were, were competing. It's, it is the community overall yeah. is still very much you know, excited and ready to be supporting Speed Rack and participating in it. From the people for the people, you know, it's it makes and shapes a lot of careers, but it's good that it gives just those access points to people that just want to participate and be part of that community. So the next big chapter before you take on brand work here with Bruno Ricard with Monkey 47 is New York. And really for me, you know, you have this illustrious career there as well, Clover Club, just to mention one. What was the impetus then for moving to New York? Was it career? Was it personal? Was it something just mm -hmm. altogether different. It was fully for my career. I think yeah. that I had um, recently ended a long-term relationship in Portland and and had a clean slate. And so I was in a position where I could either 
sort of start to lay down new roots in Portland again, or I could just go somewhere else. And yeah. a very good friend of mine had moved to LA a, f- a couple months prior and um, also encouraged me to just go, go somewhere else. And so I moved to New York with the intention of work coming here for my career. And that, and that was really the opportunity. Um, I landed on the 21st and I interviewed in Clover Club on the, well, I interviewed at Nomad on the 22nd and Clover Club on the 23rd and was able to start both of those jobs at the same time. And my, and, and, and truly it was, and it was, I, I just, <laughs> I can't say this enough. It was 95% uh, timing yeah. and 5% luck. It was it was truly what it was. I, I didn't have, um, I did not have the skills to be working in those places at that time. Mm. I learned a lot, and I my brain melted for about six months because I was learning two wildly different cocktail programs and working nonstop yeah. and uh, and and truly nonstop. I mean, Nomad is not a place for the faint of heart, and it's not a place for someone who just wants to get a promotion because right. it's it's a place where it tr- you know I was talking with um, one of the bar managers there recently and he was saying someone had asked you know what is your uh, general uh, you know longevity of, of your staff and he was like well m- about two years people stay minimum about two years wow and um, and I and I mentioned to him at the time I was like yeah that's because that's how long it takes to actually feel comfortable there. Wow. It'll take two years before you feel like you can walk into a shift at Nomad and go, okay, I'm ready. Come at me. I'm, I'm ready for whatever's going to happen tonight. It will take two years. Do you, do you um, like that feeling, though, that, that things aren't perfectly easy, that they're just slightly, there's some slight stress there? Sure. I think uh, bartending is slight stress, yeah. regard, you know, no matter what, whether you're working brunch or lunch or dinner or late night it's there's always a bit of anxiety and stress when you're bartending um there's a bit of a hustle and there's a bit of um you know uh timing and and things are of necessity at that moment you know there's time is of the essence um but i did i like that feeling at nomad yeah. To an extent, I think that it, you have no choice but to become a better bartender sure. when you've you've got four people deep and it's fifty feet across, and you you are standing in front of a wall of thirsty zombies. There's no you have <laughs> no choice but to yeah. become a better bartender. You have the, no choice. I like that. It's when you're forced to innovate, you have to right. When you're forced to succeed, you're forced to survive. That's exactly mm-hmm. what you do. Given those two programs, which are incredibly rigorous. Was there a point where you're like, I, I can't, I can't do this. I want to walk away. Or was that never? No, I don't, I don't, I didn't ever feel that way. It was more just like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Or I don't know what I'm doing. Or I don't know. Yeah, that was really it. And, and, but you, you move past that and Mm. you You have that feeling one day. And then the next day you realize, okay, I made it through. And then. And, you know, while those two programs are very, very challenging and opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of uh, bartending style and culture, it's just bartending. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's just making <laughs> drinks. And, sure. And it's just, like, being nice to people. And it's just cutting garnish a certain way. And it's just grabbing ice. And it's just wiping down bottles. And it's just turning off the lights. And mm. um, I wasn't saving lives. Do you know what I mean? I not wasn't, I was cancer, not, I was not say, saving right? any lives. Yeah. I, was, I was not doing that. So... 
while I might have been carrying some of that stress, like it was, it's totally unnecessary. And I think that bartenders take a lot of pride in their work and sometimes they stop, they don't stop and mm. go, okay, in time to take pride in yourself. Oh, that's a great point. So how are you going to take care of yourself and, and, and give yourself self-love so yeah. that you can come into this job and be a better human being? Yeah. You know? I think, well, it's, it's enlightenment, being enlightened and kind of just growing. Health is a huge thing, you know, and I, we'll talk about that in a moment, but you had a nice change of pace, I would say, in terms of the programs and the things that you were learning and the urgency and the immediacy and perhaps the anxiety levels. Was there a moment where it was intentional to shift to the brand side or was that also a natural, excuse me, a natural progression to move from behind the bar mm -hmm. into this role now with Monkey 47? Before shifting into a brand position, I actually moved away from Nomad because I wanted to travel. Yeah. And because of the rigorous schedule there, that's not something you can really do while working there. So I, I went to travel for a while and um, got my shifts covered at Clover Club. So that was great. Mm. I just had to cover my shifts and I could come back to that job, which is amazing. I was ready for a challenge and I was ready for something new. I was ready for something different. And I, and I was open to what that might be. If that meant a bigger role at Clover Club, then that would have been great. But mm. it, you know, a brand ambassador position came my way and, and I was really lucky that it was a brand I really liked Yeah, and I really respected. Um, <clears throat> so I think that it has become a trend lately that a brand ambassador position is somehow the, the next step in a beverage industry right, career. Right. And uh, that's really unfortunate because you have a lot of people accepting positions with brands that maybe don't have a lot of integrity and aren't paying what they should be. Mm -hmm. And you have bartenders who are very young and inexperienced being exploited. And so I want, I want that to change. I want people to be accepting brand ambassador positions because they love the brand because they're ready for the challenge and and i want them to be supported by by their their you know employers do you feel a duty as a notable person that is on this center stage of hospitality that you can give some insight and that you can kind of educate and prescribe how these roles should be filled and that how companies should hire do you feel like any kind of duty to the industry to do that or is it just you need them you need the information to be out there i don't feel like i have the wherewithal to be advising companies on how to hire mm. but i do feel like i have a you know the means to be able to advise other bartenders as to what they should be asking for whether it's yeah. consulting or brand ambassador or a bar manager or a new position somewhere um you know if we can all create an industry standard mm. and stop accepting peanuts and you know a pat on the back and a a measly media post sure. <laughs> then you know us as an industry as a whole will begin to be taken more seriously yeah. and you you'll start to see the fruits of that yeah it's interesting i mean it's there are all kinds of brands though too you know mm -hmm. some that just really want to turn and burn they're not really about the experience of the brand the aesthetic the beauty the connection to the people in the place mm -hmm. and that's that's business for you i mean obviously it's no surprise to us but Monkey 47, this German gem, if you will, is 47% ABV. I've been sipping it, so I've had some nice time to kind of just <laughs> coddle it a little bit and have just a nice experience with it. I've never sipped Monkey 47 by itself. had it in mm -hmm. a few amazing cocktails, but you recently were there, and you took some beautiful photos of the 
ornate, opulent botanicals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the beautiful boar babies that were milk fed, you know, or bottle raised because her mother was hunted and all this. What was it like? Was that your first time having been at the facility? No, I've been there about three times mm-hmm. and I'll be going again next month. It's a tough life. Yeah. Man. <laughs> what does it feel like to be there? Um, it feels like everything has already been thought about before you even get there. Really? It feels like there's a place for everything and everything is in its place. Yeah. It feels like you feel at ease just because everything is so aesthetically pleasing and so put together. No yeah. detail has been left untouched. It is, um, it is warm and comforting and without and it's not sterile but it's just very 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 put together it you know everything it's like intricate just every detail everything from the handle on the the you know uh the still to the basket that holds citrus every single thing has been poured over to go is this the best quality is this most aesthetically pleasing is this going to is this going to make the best gin yeah it is, if I understand correctly, it's a sugar beet base, mm-hmm. sugar beet mm-hmm. alcohol, like some French absinthe, I guess, or some of that they use mm-hmm. that. Where, where do so this this place is it? <laughs> I, I imagine like this mystical forest, right? Yeah, is it that is. kind of where it is? Yeah, it's very much. It's in the middle of the Black Forest. It's okay. very much like Grimm's Fairy Tale yeah, or Hansel yeah. and Gretel. That's, that's exactly what it, it's. It, that's actually exactly what it looks like. And how long has this gin, this miraculous concoction of 47 botanicals, if I understand correctly. Mm -hmm. How long, when did this, when was birth given to this particular? About eight eight years ago. Yeah. And it's only been in the U.S. for, I want to say, maybe around three. Yeah. But we're only really seeing it probably the last year or two. Um, While it's sort of peculiar to Americans to think of a German gin, Mm -hmm. um, it's not to Germans. Um, Udovis, schnapps, brandies, fruit brandies, gins. Those have a really long, rich history in Germany. And even uh, Geneva, which is the oldest style of gin, is made in parts of Germany. So you've got Still. Uh, yeah, an area of you know the Netherlands, Belgium, parts of France, and parts of Germany is where that can legally be made and yeah. all that gin. So All that gin in mm-hmm. Geneva. So you're in, you were in Dallas, was it yesterday or the day before? That's on your docket. I was too, in Dallas right? yesterday. Yesterday. And the day before, but yes. The rock star lifestyle, man. Oh, man. <laughs> I, my tour bus is outside. I know. It's like, it's, but it's like Willie Nelson style. It's all vegetable oil. That's how you're running that mm-hmm. thing out there. Yeah. It's like a French fry mobile. <laughs> it smells so good. Mm-hmm. And there's a Whataburger back there. So it's hard to determine where mm-hmm. the smells are coming from. Sure, sure, sure. Texas is very open to gin. Texas loves Monkey 47 too. You know, the places I've been, whether it's on North Loop or downtown, cocktails are pretty incredible. You're coming into town to educate people and sample them on the gin. Do you mm-hmm. have any particular objective for Texans, if you will, mm. in your stay here? Um, in terms of sort of educating some of the beverage industry, yeah. my objectives are that they know why Monkey 47 was so expensive and, and still is in some yeah. cases, that they know um, why this is a gin that's incredibly unique and you know, the leader of the category and beyond anything else in the gin category, that they feel like they can walk away with not only more knowledge about Monkey 47, but more knowledge about the gin as a, gin as a category overall, yeah. and that that will help them 
create a great guest interaction and get them to sell some gin. What does make Monkey 47 so unique? Mm. Um, I wasn't at the seminar today. We should have started with that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, it's uh, made in the middle of the Black Forest in Germany. Oh, I see. Okay. With 47 different herbs and botanicals. Has a cult following all over Europe and Asia. Asia, that's I noticed mm-hmm. it in China, all over the place. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, made from a neutral sugar beet molasses distillate. It's made in a 100 liter still. Crazy. So it, it literally comes off of the still in a pail in a bucket. There's no forklift. There's no like hoses and tubes and pipes and anything. Mm. You pick up the pail with your hand. Everything's made by hand and not in a like. Roma. It's not. It's not like PR. It's like, well, you don't need heavy machinery when you're making gin in yeah, such a liters, small, yeah. intimate fashion. Um, Monkey Forty Seven. The ingredients are predominantly fresh, crushed lingonberries, citrus that is fresh and peeled by hand mm. by actual people, uh, juniper berries that are crushed open, over fifteen different varietals of peppercorn that are all crushed before being used in the gin. And afterwards, it's oxidized after it comes off the still. So, how long is it oxidized? A hundred days cool. in a one thousand liter earthenware clay vessel. Mm. So you have a little bit of oxygen exchange through the pores of that clay. Mm-hmm. Um, helps the spirit open up, sure. soften a little bit, settle. It's blended with water from a reservoir in the Black Forest. It's very low in minerals, low in sodium, very soft, great for blending with yeah. spirits. It's it's delicious. I mean, it's again. <laughs> You know, hand, handmade's weird because that's your point, right? You're like, well, we're not trying to say it because it's fancy. We're saying because, like, you don't need a, a hundred liters still. You could yeah. get two guys to carry it probably, you know, mm-hmm. once it's attached. So I like the small batch nature of this. And the perception so far, or the reception rather, it's been quite positive. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, the the overwhelming feedback I get from people when I taste them on Monkey 47 is, Oh my god, that's amazing! That's the best gin I've ever had. I, wow, I can't believe I'm drinking this neat. That's so good. And then it's usually followed up with, "Where's the regular size bottle? And why is it so expensive?" <laughs> so we actually made a one liter bottle exclusively yeah. for American bars. That's great. Um, reworked the price a little bit, and we're able to bring it down so that people can put it on their menus now. I mean, it was a great problem to have. Bartenders weren't saying, "I don't want to carry this gin." They were saying, "This is amazing." I not only do I want to carry it, I want to put it on a menu. Yeah. And I need to put it on a menu at a rate that my guests are uh, price my guests are going to want to buy. So, you know, I want to I want to be using more of this gin. So we made the 1 liter bottle exclusively for the American market and yeah, I don't know of any other brand or spirit that would go, like listen so yeah. well and then go Okay, I'll I'll put it in a bigger bottle None and I guess I'll bring anyway. the price down, yeah. you know what I mean? So, um and for it to happen so quickly too, I it, it happened 11 months after I started. Man. So, How long in total have you been in the role now? About 13 months. Oh, cool. So just so, over the year mark. Just over a year. Feeling more comfortable with it? Feeling like you're hitting a stride now? Yeah, I th- yeah sure. I think um, I'm, I, there are challenges and rewards. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly challenged with this position. It's great. I have a really, really incredible group of people who support me. And, and you know, I, I'm, I'm in really good hands. It's, yeah. a, it's incredible. It's great. Product, obviously, good crew here in Austin with R&DC mm-hmm. and with Bernard Ricard. So I got two questions left for you. Okay. This journey that we've been on, this conversation itself. I read recently in an article that if you were to make a cocktail for anybody, you would have wanted to make a cocktail for Tom Petty. This mm-hmm. is before he had passed. 
Mm-hmm. So thinking about that concept, if you could share a drink, whatever you want, mm-hmm. anywhere in the world, doesn't matter. And you could share a drink with anybody living or deceased who might, and of course there could be multiple answers, but who might you like to just sit down and have a conversation with? Mm, probably Prince. Yeah. I <laughs> did, mean, you, did you hear about the fentanyl thing this week? They found like record high amounts of fentanyl, which yeah. I didn't realize. Yeah, I think that, that, yeah. I actually had heard that a while ago that yeah. he was, he had a lot of body pain and was taking a lot of pain pills. That was the rumor, right? But like, mm-hmm. I, I didn't know specifically that one, mm-hmm. but an eccentric guy, what do you think Prince would drink? I don't know if I've seen him drink it before. I am not worthy to predict <laughs> Prince's preferences. Uh, I I imagine if I ever shared a drink with Prince, there would have to be like a like a curtain or a screen in yeah. between us because like you're not like allowed to even make direct eye contact <laughs> with him. I actually recently heard that when he would go and do sound at his like sound checks for his shows, uh-huh. um, he would talk to his sound person who would then talk to the person in the booth but he would never talk to he was like yeah he he was a very eccentric and particular guy um but i also think it was all about self-preservation you know he did what he had to do to protect his creative process and to protect himself from i think you know the media goblins yeah but ultimately his demise in fact being so surrounded by himself Mm -hmm. these geniuses it's, it's hard i think as life goes on to just keep innovating, you know, that pressure mm-hmm. to do that. Well, last question for you is, where are you off to next? You've been in Dallas, you've been in Austin. What's the next yeah. stop in the tour bus? I'll yeah, I'll go to uh, San Antonio in the morning. Oh, nice. Yeah, gonna you go, there? I'm going to host um, a Monkey 47 educational at Jazz. Oh, cool. And meet some folks out there. And then I'll be there for the evening. And then I fly back to New York early Friday morning. Man, you staying healthy? So, yeah, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I'm a picture of health. You no, yeah, it's, it's really That's important right. to create clear boundaries in your life when you're traveling like this yeah. to be able to stay healthy and no, feel and wake up feeling good. You know, you have to. It's early. Yeah. These trainings aren't always in the afternoon. You know, yeah. they're not late. So yeah. Well, it's been brilliant. I really think thank you for coordinating your schedule and kind of taking some time out to chat about gin, chat about life, chat about Prince. Mm-hmm. I was just really want to chat about Prince for like an sure. hour. It was a roundabout way, I know, to get there, <laughs> but. Eventually we got there. Lacey, thank you so much for stopping in Austin and educating us on Monkey 47. But thanks so much for chatting with me. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thank you. Well, there we have it. What do you guys think? Lacey Hawkins of Monkey 47 is a brilliant gin, delicious, full of flavor. And I'm glad that Lacey was able to spend some time with us here in Austin, Texas. The big brother, big sister, little brother, little sister to Portland. A lot of similarities in culture and the people. And I was so glad for Lacey to take some time out of her busy schedule here in Texas to sit down and chat. So thanks, everybody, for listening to Show to V with Mike G. No matter if you're thinking, was that a Hulu purchase that Spotify offered as a promotion really a good idea or not? Or if you're thinking, Jason Bateman, man, that guy does not age a day ever. Looks just like he did in Teen Wolf 2. Please keep dancing.